the Danger Close podcast. Beyond the books with me, Jack Welcome to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today is my friend and teammate, Dom Rasso. We met at SEAL Team 2 quite a few moons ago. He then graduated to the ranks of the Naval Special Warfare Development Group, going downrange time and time again. When he got out, he founded Dynamis Alliance. You can find out more about them at crusheverything.com. And now, without further ado, Dom Rasso. What's up, buddy? What's up, brother? <laughs> what awesome. Up? It is so good to see you. And when I started this thing, this podcast, this was one of the main things I was looking forward to is being able to turn off phones, all the things we just talked about beeping at me all the time that drive me insane, and just sit down and have a conversation with a buddy. Yeah. Because we don't do that enough. Like we would never just sit down like this if we didn't have like a reason to do it on the I just feel like that, that's crazy. very an intriguing point in life where you're like, we actually have to do this to catch up and be this focused. But it's good though. And uh, I've been looking forward to it too, brother. So uh-huh. it's awesome to be here. Awesome. Awesome. But yeah, it's crazy how we have to do that. But I noticed it about other people's podcasts, you know, over the years since I got out and wrote the first book and then started doing podcasts with other people that uh, that was very enjoyable to me, especially if I knew them. Even if I didn't, sometimes you could create these friendships during these conversations with people that you don't even know because you sit down and get to know that person over an hour, two hours, half hour, hour and a half, whatever it might be. But uh, so for me, this is the best best part. So we just get to get to catch up. Yeah, dude, everything. I mean, Danger Close podcast, everything you have going on. It's, it's awesome. You know, and I always just find it very unique and and interesting how James Reese and how I connect with, (laughs) whether it's a creative side or, or gear. I just love everything that you're doing with the character right now. It's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Well, your gear is in the books, like your influence is in the books. You led the way getting out of the military first and uh, stepping into this world of of social media that I want to talk to you about later um, and then building a business. And obviously we're not quote unquote trained for that, but you know, what we are trained for almost inadvertently is to be an entrepreneur because that's what you're doing on the battlefield is that constant adaptation, obviously looking for gaps in the enemy's defenses, capitalizing on on momentum and opportunity, which is really what we're doing now as entrepreneurs. But if if we screw up here, that's okay. We can fix it tomorrow. We can adjust tomorrow. No one's coming home in a body bag because of the decision that we, that we made. And you don't have to make decisions as fast because bullets aren't flying in. You can take a second, then you can sleep on it. But still, it's a game of constant. Don't sleep on it too long. (laughs) Sometimes you do get caught up in the, uh, it's life or death right now. Yeah. And we do, you know, so that that intermingling of the two worlds is very interesting. But the the one word that hit me was adaptability. You know, so no matter what the problem is or what the challenge is, it's that that level of adaptability. It's just like put it in front of me. I'm gonna figure it out. I'm gonna figure out a path forward. So those principles apply to everything we do, whether it's an entrepreneur or being a great dad, I feel like apply really well. As long as we're we're continuing to evolve and grow, yeah. and not get stagnant or stuck in a place that's could hold us back or potentially be damaging in a way, because totally. I think some of the things can bite us in the butt too, from yeah. what we know and what we thought we knew. You know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Or we can look at these things, these problems, as life or death. When hey, maybe we can really take it a breath. Need that? Don't, yeah, <laughs> we don't really need that that level of uh, of intensity. Still that level of thought, but maybe we can take a pause and put a little more thought because we're it's not. 
we're not required to make this decision right now because the enemy is flanking or moving to high ground or whatever it might be, or even more long-term adapting how they do their IEDs based off our counters and and all the rest of it. So it's, uh, but adaptability personally and professionally, like the the personal side of the house also when when life knocks you down or throws something unexpected your way, I mean, you get to choose as you know, uh, uh, whether you're gonna sit there and just feel sorry for yourself or if you're gonna adapt, because eventually you have to adapt. You know, it's gonna happen, you're gonna get there. It's just how long it's gonna take you to then uh, realize that you have to adapt uh, and you gotta get up and, and move forward. But um, before we get into more of that stuff, when, where were you like the first time that you found out what, what a SEAL was? Like how old were you? Were you already interested in the military and knew you were going that route and then found out about SEALs or what was that path like for you? Yeah, this, this is easy because I was just with my buddy John and you know, John yeah. from Divine Canines oh, yeah. is very, very, awesome to see John and I where we're at today. He was actually just in Virginia Beach and pretty sure we were eight years old, seven or eight. I'm a year older than him, but we were literally walking down the street and we grew up right across the street from each other. I can literally throw a rock at his house and we had just got done playing manhunt or we were doing something in the neighborhood. You know, we'd do cops and robbers, you know, all all that stuff that that we did when you were younger, paint our faces and crawl around. And I remember him saying, yeah, there's these guys that my uncle was telling me about, you know, they're like Navy SEALs, like the best of the best, tip of the spear, however that came out. You know, I just remember him saying that and me being like, wait a minute, who's this this group or this unit that's at that high a level? So it just intrigued me and I wanted to know more. And so me and him as young kids are just like totally feeding into this idea of, who are these guys? What do they do? Why do they exist? And I think that journey led us to the point where we went to the local library. And I, I can't remember, but I think it was either two or three books that existed in the library at the time. And I remember the one that you flipped through was the guys in the desert in the, on the side-by-sides. It was guys with the 50 cal. It was all the classic pictures that you see, but that sparked a journey in our hearts where it's like, we've got to know more about these guys. Mm-hmm. And so then we started traveling to different libraries. And then we were pretty much sold on the idea that we were gonna become SEALs when we were older. Yeah. That was the mission, that was the journey. Everything in our childhood kind of led to that. Mm-hmm. We would surf torture each other at the end of the road, which we lived right down like 200 yards away from the, the water up nice. in New England, which provided a really good opportunity to do that. Yeah. Uh, we'd go drown proof each other, you know, nine, 10 years old in the local pool, you know, where people were like, what are these kids doing? Tying yeah. each other up, uh, playing manhunt, paintball. I mean, everything that aligned with that lifestyle. We kind of just pushed each other and pushed each other until it became a reality. I mean, it's easy to say from that point to when I was 18 and when I signed up, but there was a huge long journey in there too. I had a lot of valleys that I went through that that tried to grab me and pull me down in a lot of different ways. And luckily I just snapped out of it one day from that journey, but John and I, there was a one pivotal moment, you know, out in the front porch, you know, playing with each other, basically saying, we're gonna make a bet. Mm-hmm. Who's gonna become a SEAL first? And we shook hands and we bet each other, I'm pretty sure it was either 50 or 100 bucks. <laughs> and we shook hands on it, I beat him, he eventually did it. He owed me money for a long yeah. time. And I, I was, it was actually- a thousand, wondering. wasn't it? Wasn't it a thousand you guys It bet? like collected interest over time. Yeah. You know, we just give each other a hard time. I always got free drinks out of the deal. <laughs> but this last couple of shot shows, we actually linked up and he finally paid up. And then I was so pumped to get the money and we threw it on a craps table and it was gone in about like two seconds. So yeah. it was the most anticlimactic uh, thing that yeah. worked up to that point. Well, but yeah, yeah. That, that's in short, that's kind of the journey that John and I took. We motivated each other, we pushed each other. I think that was a key element in both of us really driving towards that goal. 
Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, they don't build the Palazzo in Venetian because people go there and win uh, all the time. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> uh, so in high school, were you when you were doing? Did you do sports, and did you uh, did you think about while you were doing those sports, or about hey, how's this going to uh, help me as I move into my post high school life, as I move into the military? I think a lot of high school, at least middle school, I was pretty locked on and focused. Mm -hmm. You know, I was working out on my own. You know, I thought about the idea. I was doing karate. I went, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Shaolin Kempo. I did that growing up. That was mm -hmm. actually really good for me. Yeah. I worked my way through some of the belts. I did some instructing when I was younger. And when I shifted to high school, that's when everything started to kind of go downhill for me. Mm -hmm. You know, I lost sight of that goal. I uh, started hanging around with the wrong people, you know, letting influences and letting the world kind of take control of my heart and doing things for the wrong reasons all mm -hmm. over the place in every aspect of my life, upsetting my parents, and, and just going down these, these dark paths. And so that kind of led me to a point where I was in pretty much despair at that point. I mean, I could unpack a whole journey of being younger, but I always say to myself, man, I was like, if I, I'm glad I got out of there, but I'm lucky that I didn't either kill myself, kill somebody else, or, you know, end up in jail. Really? You know, I mean, it was that bad. I mean, a lot of those I, I got away by the skin of my teeth and I just, I know it's a blessing. I know it's purpose-driven and why I was able to see those things in my life. But it was really, really uh, interesting in how I got out of that. So, you know, that was just a part of it. When I got into high school, I played football a little bit. I stayed pretty active, but that whole high school era was pretty much just like all gray area for me. I just yeah. ended up doing the wrong thing. Got it. You, know? uh, you, were, you were fighting at the time? Uh, I stopped fighting around high school, I think. Yeah. Again, hanging around with the wrong people, wrong motivations. Yeah. You know, I started doing all the things that you shouldn't do. Drinking way too much, mm. uh, doing drugs, you know, it was just mm. stuff that I just shouldn't have been involved with. Yeah. And like I said, by the grace of God, I snapped out of it all. That's tough, and it doesn't matter what community you come from. I mean, that stuff is there, and even more today. Like, you had influence that were actual people. Um, now, you don't even have to have an actual person that's a bad influence that a parent can see and say, wait, this something doesn't look right here. Yeah. Uh, it's all on these phones for these kids. And even if you're a parent and we're struggling with it right now in that uh, you're trying to get these controls on there and you can watch what your kids is doing kind of, but they have counters just like the enemy. They're adapting. Yep. Those kids, they're adapted just like the enemy does. Um, and uh, uh, there's so many other influences out there. Some good, some bad, some positive, some negative, um, but they're influences nonetheless. And even if you cut all that out, there are still so many more um, distractions and uh, in, and influences than we had growing up just because, okay, maybe you take the phone away. Okay, well, guess what? There's a computer. Oh, I guess there's an iPad. Oh, there's an older sibling. Oh, there's a friend who has one. Uh, oh, well, they don't go to that person's house. Oh, guess what? You're in a carpool with someone who has one because there's four kids. Yeah. I mean, there, there are going to be these inputs that, uh, that we can't necessarily control as parents. We can try, um, but that education piece and what you're doing a great job with when I see how you're dealing with it is, is uh, I'm taking some notes, but, uh, but like you had actual people, point mm -hmm. being. Today, yes, they have actual people, and then they have all these definitely. other things as well. So I think it's a lot tougher now. It is definitely a lot tougher. And when I analyze when I was younger, you know, because if you go back and analyze our parents and what they went through, you know, they were growing up in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And I feel like that's where a huge derailing of our society when it comes to moral principles and values started to mm -hmm. take place. So that they were kind of like, oh, you can kind of do whatever you want, really. Now they're parenting us, and then I saw that play out. 
So knowing what I did and seeing some of my other friends that didn't ever leave, you know, the town that I came from yeah. or still doing the same thing is that we needed more guidance. Mm. We needed more men and influence in our lives to mm. guide us on the right track. It always took a village to raise mm. warriors and men. It's not ever since like, what, the last hundred years where really we're just like, oh, you can kind of go to another state, hang around with whoever you want, go to college. And basically you're letting professors and other children of other influence raise your kid, yeah. right? That's a completely radical idea yeah. from a hundred years ago. Like a hundred years ago, if I was doing something, that trade was passed down to my son. Mm -hmm. There wasn't even, any, you didn't even think about that. Right. So this is, this is something that I've been exploring both in my own life and in the lives of our culture is like, how do we get that back? Mm. You know, because if I know what I got into, I can only imagine, like you said, it's more difficult now. And so how are we countering that to our own children? I mean, this is something I'm extremely passionate yeah. about, so I could sit here and talk about this all day. But I do think it, it takes some serious intentionality about rethinking about how we're parenting. Yeah. You know, I have five kids, and for me, it's everything. It's the most important thing I do. Yeah. You know, is making sure that those kids are being armed with their faith, their morals and principles so they can go out there and know exactly what's right and wrong. Yeah. Or maybe I didn't have that. Mm -hmm. You know, I was able to slip up. Thank God I, I made it through, but man, I was so close to hurting people yeah. and myself. And it was by like one degree that wow. that could have happened and I wouldn't be here today. Just like everything else in life, but what could have guided me a little bit closer to the right path? Maybe somebody or a parent or, or an influence that would have been like, you know what? I need to rethink about what I'm doing before I go put myself in this situation. Yeah. I mean, not only did I just make it out alive myself, but all the people I hurt along the way, mm. all the people I damaged our relationships mm -hmm. and, and really put pain in people's lives because yeah. I was being selfish or I didn't sure. know the right thing, you know? Yeah. What was that point where you, where you uh, realized that you were going the wrong path and took that breath or whatever it might have been? Was there a, a culminating point of everything building up, building up, and then where you said, oh, hey, you know what? It's time for a change. Boom, I'm focused on the military again. Here I yeah, go. Yeah, 100%. And it was at the lowest of the low that, I, that I've ever been in my entire life. Uh, I think all the way through the journey of that dark valley, I certainly understood that some of the things I was doing was wrong. Mm. And I think having faith really young set the foundation where my heart, knowing that I'm kind of going down these paths for the wrong reasons, but yet the world grabs us takes control of us, this, this idea of, I wanna make my friends happier, I wanna go do this thing, or this new thing, or this new fad. Um, and that's why I tell kids all the time, be very careful about what you're mm. letting control your heart. So along that journey of years, I mean, I guess two or three years really where it got really mm. bad, was watching my life kind of fall apart. Mm. You know, I got kicked out of my mother's house, I got kicked out of my dad's house, and at fast forwarding that, that part of my life, and it's tough to talk about. I mean, it really is. Like, I've, at this point in my life, almost not erased it, mm. but kind of put it where it belongs to mm. be like, that was, a, that was a part of who I was, but I know more now because of it, mm. because I went through those tough times. But it was really at a point where I was living in an apartment, I mean, drinking drugs every other night, and ultimately, it led me to a point where I was, I was at the point where I was thinking about killing myself. I mean, I got that low. That's tough to say because, you know, it's so long ago and it's such like a foreign idea now. Like yeah. I would never even contemplate that at this point, being rearmed with faith and the values that I have today. But at that moment, I was by myself in a bathroom 
And I will never, ever forget the feeling of God's grace and forgiveness coming over me and literally like grabbing me by the shoulder and be like, this isn't where you're supposed to be. Mm. This isn't who you are. And literally feeling that love of God and totally at that moment being like, whoa, like what am I doing? How did I get to this point? How did I let life drag me so far down this path? And the next day I walked into the recruiter's office. No way. The next morning, I stripped everything. I got rid of everything. I changed that moment. Wow. At that very instant, I changed. And I walked into the recruiter's office. And I'll never forget the two guys that were standing there looking at me, shaved head, super skinny, malnourished, didn't have my stuff together, baggy clothes on. And they're like, I'm like, yeah, so uh, I want to be a SEAL. And they looked at me like, this kid. Like, yeah, okay, kid, uh, go take the ASVAB. It's in the back of the room over there. No way. Uh, And I remember the first time I went back there to take the ASVAB and they just were mocking me the whole time. I remember feeling that pressure from them. Like, there's no way, you're, you're in the wrong place. But I remember so being so convicted of that reinvigoration of this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. And wow. that, from that point on, my life changed. Yeah, I mean, wow. I started running the very next day. I threw my boots on and jeans. I had no idea how far I was going. I just went out in the street and started running. No way. And I kind of reconnected with what I said I was gonna do. And so all that came flooding back. And I started to kind of contemplate and go through all the things that I did wrong. You know, and, and in that moment, kind of reconciling with my dad, with my mom, wow. at what little at what little bit I could. Mm-hmm. And I think I was 17 when I went to the recruiter's office. I was Dang. 17 years old saying, hey, this is what I want to do. And so they put me on the path. I eventually went into MEPS. Mm-hmm. Even in the midst of trying to get into the Navy, there were some mishaps that, that occurred. I actually remember getting pulled over while I was signed up for the military, waiting to leave. And so... My mom actually saved my butt on that one. I forgot, I think I was speeding. I was speeding and got pulled over. And my mom came out and because I had done so many things wrong, they're like, hey, you're probably gonna have to get, you know, either arrested or we're gonna have to talk to you or this is gonna go on your record. But my mother was so worried about that stopping me from going to the military. <laughs> she like called everybody she knew in her phone book. Wow. And, and somehow, I don't even know what she did, but I'm not even gonna ask any questions at this <laughs> point. Uh, you know, my mom, you know, God rest her soul. She's uh, in, you know, heaven at this point. but. She stopped that from happening. And then so all these little things that tried to stop me along the way, eventually leaving launched where I am today, wow. sitting here with you. Wow. You know, and how many times have I said like, man, how surreal is this? I'm sitting here with one of my best friends, John, right? You sitting here, like the things that we've been able to accomplish, but coming from that level, wow. I always try to tell kids like, you can do whatever you put your mind to. I knew Adam Brown really well. Yeah. And so while it's really challenging for me to read his book, I can relate to a lot of what mm-hmm. he went through and a lot of that struggle yeah. and that journey that he eventually took. Yeah. You know, being in despair and being in that, that low, low, mm-hmm. but God using that as a way to glorify these things that we go through, these dark places that we visit in our lives, these struggles, this adversity. It's all purpose-driven. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you how many times, I think it would be hard for somebody that hasn't been through something to sit there and preach about mm-hmm. that circumstance. Yeah. But out of all the things that I was able to see, this in particular, I was like, I know what it's like to be at that level. I know what it's like to hang out with gangs in the middle of a city, shooting at people at two o'clock in the morning while people are trying to you know, manipulate you into doing something you don't wanna do. Like, I know what that feels like. 
So when I look at somebody in the eye, I'm like, I can feel your pain, mm. you know, and there's a much better life after that. That's just one instance, but wow. I just feel like God uses those things for us to be able to see that and to help other people. And I think that that's what it's about is to be able to give that back, to be able yeah. to serve others, to stop that from happening. Goes right back to parenting. How has God given us the experiences that we have and are we using it to our full potential for our children? Yeah. Do we know that? Are we really applying that? You know. Any one of these one degree changers could put my son in the right th where I was. So am I doing enough to stop that from happening? Yeah. Oh man, so, so at 17 then, did you stop like next day, no more drugs, no? Everything. Bam, started Everything. running, started working out. Everything. What, what, what drugs were there that you were, allowed, that you were like, okay, I can, I, can, I can make this. And were you ever tempted to go back? Nope, nope. I never was tempted to go back and I didn't even think about it for a second. Uh, I have, really dug into that both professionally, personally, pre-military, post-military, is that if anything's kind of taken control of my life, yeah. and I've done this in the past, whether it was cigarettes, whether it was any of the things that I was doing, any of the drugs that I was doing, I always knew that I had to be able to put them in their place mm -hmm. to not be able to control me. You know, food's the same way. Anything that we have, habits are the same way for me. If I feel like they're starting to grab me in a negative manner, mm. I'll put them in their place. And of course, that's that's easier said than done from some people. Yeah. But I do believe that we need to practice that. We need to exercise that and, and do yeah. that. But uh, yeah, right at that day, I just was like, that's it. You know? That takes a lot of strength right there. Um, and interesting that you talk about you know parenting and these influences because they're like mentorship. There's a reason that a mentor is not a parent, really. If you go back and look at the uh, look at the, the history of that word and what that position meant uh, in society, uh, a mentor, because it does make a difference. Like when you tell my kids something, it's different than me telling them. Hundred percent something, whatever that is. The you know, village. there's 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 something there. So that's why uh, mentorship and a mentor was uh, was so important for peoples in the past. Um, yeah, and they didn't have these influences. <laughs> you know, they didn't have any of these, uh, uh, any of these influences that we've been, uh, that have been talking about. And interesting, you talk about uh, culture earlier as well. Um, like some of those influences in the 80s, movies. And movies used to be our most powerful export from this country around the world, Hollywood, and in a good way. Um, and people would see these movies and say, oh my gosh, I wanna go to that country. I, you know, maybe I'm gonna be a movie star, uh, or maybe I'm gonna, I can do this and that. But, uh, but now, obviously Hollywood, a little different, but if you grew up in the 70s, if you grew up in the 80s, uh, even the 90s before the advent of, uh, of social media, but I'll focus on the, the 80s, um, if you didn't have a mentor, you could have almost a virtual mentor in some of these people in movies. I mean, Rocky movies growing up, hugely impactful. <laughs> in my life. Yep. If I, would, I mean, we identify with the underdog and then you see Correct. this person rising from nothing and facing these struggles and then uh, facing adversity and going, I mean, it's an amazing story, uh, which is why everyone around the world knows that story, knows the Rocky story. Yeah. Um, but you had these, these movies where you had, and for me, I would identify with that, identify with these obviously special operations focused movies, uh, whether it was Rambo or Commando or whatever, it might be Predator. Um, but those were a big influence in a positive way. Uh, and that, hey, I wanna be like that guy. I wanna be like uh, John Matrix or, you know, right. Dutch or whatever it is, yeah. you know? Like, I'm gonna do, how do I get to be like that? Well, I gotta work out. I guess I do some pull-ups. Those are pretty big guys over there. <laughs> they look pretty in shape. Yeah. Um, and just, I mean, that, that was very powerful. Um, but I think now there are so many other distractions for these kids. Like I, my kids don't even watch movies like that. 
anymore. Yeah. They're they're like there's nothing there's not something happening every second for them like these the TikTok brain. Like Wall Street Journal had an article on TikTok brain about 15 seconds worth of distraction until you need another one. And so I printed it out. I took all the advertising, all the distractions within the article, uh, and gave it to our, our little guy, our 11-year-old, for him to read. And uh, so he can be aware of what's going on out there and just you know, trying to do the, the, the best we can, though. But uh, that mentorship piece, um, is, uh, that's important. The, the key thing that you said, and I knew this about, that's why I said it takes a village to raise your kids. It's, it's truth. There's truth behind that. And there's been a beautiful thing happening locally for us. And knowing that, we've been leaning into that idea. I have a, a brotherhood of men that we meet every week. We pray together. We literally do everything together to try to help each other, professionally and personally. And the fruits that, that have come to fruition from doing that is exactly like you said. If Dominic, which she's with me now, right? And one day I'll probably do a podcast with him at some point. But if you came up and said something to him, He's gonna resonate with that. You know, he's gonna look at you. He's gonna, he's gonna be like, he's gonna look up to you. And so if he starts hearing that consistently, which is what happened in the village, hey, we're all we're all living this path for a reason. This whole village, that's our goal. Right there. We're all in this together, unified. And that does something powerfully different to a young boy, especially. Young kids, young girls, even so. Yeah. And I think that that's something that we need to fight to get back to. And we've been working on that, and just the fruits that that's been coming to fortune in our own lives is true. So I think that for anybody that's out there that's being a parent, it's like, who are you surrounding yourself with? Oh, yeah. And are you okay with your kids hearing what they have to say? And the technology piece, man, we don't allow technology in our home. That's good. Period, end of story. Or soft drinks. Or soft drinks. Yeah, we don't, high fructose corn syrup's like, boom, boom. done. Um, but the technology piece is critical because we're, there is no control over it. I can barely even understand it myself and it's constantly adapting. Mm -hmm. So that should beg the question, how are we even coming close to thinking that that's okay? We gotta put that in its place. It's like what I was telling you about. Put that in its place, let's go from here. I think today, you'll hear me say this a lot, we need to be radically different than the world is telling us to be. Mm, I like and that's, that. that's the mission that I'm on right now. A thousand percent radically different. I question everything that the mainstream anybody's doing. Mm -hmm. And so I put it in its place, I question it, I analyze it, and I look at what's real, what's true, what's been working for thousands of years, do that first, and then we'll explore. Interesting. You know? So that's a whole just idea. Of no, I like that, being radically different um, than the world's telling us to be. 100%. Because the world right now, this is a very, I mean, a slim portion of human history. Where, we, where we've had this technology, where we've had these, uh, the option to dial 911 if uh, somebody, you hear something outside or uh, to go to the grocery store to get some hamburgers for, for dinner. Um, that is, a, this, I mean, that is this much of human history. The rest of it, we had to be good fighters. We had to be good warriors. Uh, we had to be able to go out there and hunt and put food on the table because if not, Guess what? We're dead. Our families are dead. Our yes. village is dead. Our community's done. Um, just that idea alone. Why wouldn't we take that small percentage and just literally put it where it's supposed to be in its place and keep these principles? You know, th everything you're saying is right, and I just think that we need to get back to that as much as we possibly can, and not just say it yep. and know it's true, but actually live that out. Yep. Yeah, so we try to do with the, the kids. We try to go on these hunts because a lot of places where we hunt, the, there's no Wi-Fi, there's no cell service. Uh, and then they get to, to see, oh, here we go. Uh, this is what people have been doing for thousands of years. Uh, we might go back to it. Society is quite fragile, um, which 
early 2020, people started to realize just how fragile society was, uh, well, throughout most of 2020. And uh, I think some people took some, some steps. I got a lot of calls from California wondering why they couldn't just walk into a store and buy a pistol and, or a rifle and go home and, uh, and have it just in case. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you've been paying attention. You've been voting people into office that have been restricting that right for you for quite some time now. Um, but they thought that you could and they were shocked that, uh, that they couldn't do that. It was surprising how many calls that I, I got like that or text messages that I got like that. Nothing surprised me yeah. during that time. <laughs> Nothing. Yeah. I mean, not one thing that came up was like, oh, th this, this is different. I didn't expect that to happen. I'm like, these are all just the principles that we've been saying are true, which is why we train, which is why we prepare our mindset, our families. We try to stay to these, these foundational things that prepare us for moments like this. You know, that's why, oh, okay, no big deal. We're just doing what we always do. I mean, things didn't change for us very much. Yeah. We homeschool our kids. You know, we, I mean, literally, we didn't skip a beat. Yeah. You know, we're like, well, where can we do with all this time that, you know, people are basically yeah. taking away from us? Because, oh, we can't go out to eat. No, that's not that big of a deal. Right. You know, more family dinners. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, my wife said she, at the beginning of that in 2020, she's like, not much has changed for you. <laughs> I know it feels pretty much the same, um, <laughs> but uh, but there's some things to tweak. You know, there are a couple of things that I wanted to, to tweak. It a lot. it was a good even for me, someone who was grown up before the military, before I didn't have a great awakening. I was just always drawn to the outdoors, drawn towards being prepared. It was just a very natural Correct. thing for me. It was just in the in my blood. But um, you know, maybe want to tweak things. So we'd, we'd moved a couple times, and you know, we're in a new place, and you know, some things maybe weren't as uh, dialed in as I, I wanted them to be. And uh, but so I took some notes and made some made some adjustments. You know, mostly minor, but uh, but still, it was an opportunity to to do that. Yes. Um, some people made some major ones, and then went back to being. The way they were. Some people made some major work and, and stuck with it and took a, made a, a lifestyle change and yep. now have are aware that, oh, maybe I should have a fire extinguisher on each floor of the house. And you know what? Maybe the kids should know how to use it. Let's go build a fire in the backyard and uh, teach them how to use this fire extinguisher. So the first time they're using it isn't when there's an actual fire and they realize they don't know how to use it or it's expired. It doesn't even work. It's dusty, you know, it's been there for 20 years. Um, and maybe the babysitter, maybe we have a babysitter or maybe we have a grandparent living with us. Do they know how to do that sort of a thing? Uh, do we have some water? Do we have some food? Do we some ammo, do we have firearms, do we know how to use them, do we have some medical training, do we have some yes. you know, medications, you know, that's sort of like the basic stuff that you've had to, done, to have done for most of human history to survive. Um, so I thought that was very, that was very interesting. Um, but, uh, but going back to, to MAPS, I remember that very distinctly, going and taking the ASVAB and doing the physical and getting on that bus and going to boot camp and, you know, the whole, the whole thing and just uh, boot camp and and OCS that happened, you know, years later. Uh, I put those in the same category because they were exactly the same. You know, it was just a that that's a, a gray area for me because I just wanted to get to buds. You know, yep. just, that was the just same get to buds. That I had. Uh, but what was that like? What was the what was that experience like? Like you get in, your uh, your mom helps you out of that ticket, and you uh, you get to you're on this path now, and uh, and off you go to Great Lakes. And were you dive fair program? Was that was that still mm -mm. going? So you just went. You were just enlisted, and you're going to try out. You weren't didn't have that contract that says like the dive fair program was pretty much a scam. It was like, hey, yeah. we guarantee you I the them ability to try out at boot camp, right? But I didn't know everybody something. got that. Yeah. And then basically, it was like, you know, whatever school you pick, if you don't make it, that's what you default to. The source rating. The source rating. So they kind of laid out all these options for me. I don't, I don't forget that because they had parachute rigor and they had several other ones that were uh, like months long. 
Right. And I remember them, I remember looking at all of them, they're like, well, what's the shortest one? I'm just trying to get the buzz. So many guys did that, and well, I did not do that. Well, I'm like, why, why six months? No, I don't want to spend six months over here. I'm trying to get the that buzz. That was smart. So uh, parachute rigger school was like, what, six weeks, eight weeks? Okay. It's like, that's clearly the answer. Interesting. You know? And, and so did I, you know which one was the source rating? Like sometimes I've heard stories of people that think everything's source rating. What I, I thought, and then it's not a source I, rating for buds, and they have to I go to the fleet that for four years. Highlighted that for me. Okay, they didn't at least say yeah. that this was this. So I narrowed it down to whatever the three or four were, yeah. and I just picked the shortest one. And so That's for smart. me, I feel like there were a lot of times where I just barely made it by the skin of my teeth. I mean, I was in boot camp, and I was like, oh, there's this training program for like the SEAL uh, EOD guys. How do I get to that? Like, yeah, well, you don't really do that unless all these things are in place. I'm like, oh, well, it's earlier in the morning. I got to wake up early. And yeah, yeah. My, it was based off of my recruiter's attitude or my, uh, the, whatever the guy's name that led the- It was like a dive motivator or something? Or did uh, they have a- No, just whatever your oh. little crew there was. Oh, yeah, I've I forgotten that as well. Anyway, yes, I It was like up to that. him. Yeah. You know, he's like, man, today I'm not really feeling it. Like, you're just going to go. I'm like, okay. And I would just beg him. And then I feel like, you know, really? okay, he's not letting me go. See, I think so, that's what the dive fair program did is on paper, it guaranteed you the right to try out. So you couldn't have that chief or that E6 that was yeah. in your I didn't have thing. that. I had to fight for Interesting. it. Interesting. I mean, I literally had to beg like multiple yeah. people to get them to talk to each other to beg, well, oh, he's clearly gosh. trying to go, let him go. Uh, so then the first time that I did the test, <laughs> I did the test again in boot camp. And remember, I hadn't even known what the test was before I got in. Really? Like I kind of glimpsed at it, but it wasn't really well known. Not yeah. like now, like we can Google everything and mm. overthink everything to a nauseam, yeah. right? into a point of paralysis, which right? I warn kids about all the time. Like mm -hmm. stop freaking overthinking this thing, just go. Yeah. But when I did the test, I did the swim test, dude, I was like a drowning rat. Like lap five, I was like, <laughs> really? Like, didn't make the time. Really? And I got out of the water like, oh my goodness. Like this is way harder than I thought it was gonna be. Yeah. And so I, I then kicked it even more high gear trying to get the time to go swim. And I was just determined to figure that out. And within about a week, I had pushed every day, every day to get to the swim up. No. I was asking questions. How do I get this? the stroke better? How do I do this better? I was watching guys. I would sit in the side of the pool. Whatever second I had left over, I would literally, before I went to bed at night, I would practice the stroke in my, you know, in my rack or next wow. to my rack. Yeah. And I just got it to the point where I passed everything, almost at the very end of boot camp, but I did it. So it was by the skin of my teeth that I did that whole thing, that whole progression, because I had never known what the actual test was until I was in boot camp. Wow. So that was interesting too. You know, just, it, it's harder than you think. Like it, it looks on paper, it looks easy. You're like, ah, we're 10 pull-ups and not when you put whatever, how many two-minute pull-ups or push-ups, sit-ups and the run and the swim. But when you put it all together and you had the stress of being there, uh, like it's not as easy as one would think. Yeah. Um, it's actually a good little workout. And to this day, I still think it's a good baseline of where are you. Yeah. You know, even for me, like if for anybody, if it's 30 years from now, where are you at on this test? But that was an interesting thing. You know, you talk about the will to fight. I always say that, you know, the will to fight. I had to dig in boot camp to, to find that, that inch, that second, yeah. to be able to get to the point where I passed. But th then that was it. Uh, got into Bud's pretty much right after that, right? Yeah, I don't even think I got time. I think I went right from so there. So Parachute Rigger School. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Parachute Rigger. That's right. Parachute Rigger. Pensacola. Where was that? That was in Pensacola. Okay. Yep. Did that quick school and then right to boot camp. Okay. Uh, right to, to Bud's. Bud's. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, see, I didn't think, I didn't look at the time. I didn't even know if there, there probably was a parentheses after the source rating that had a number of weeks in there, but I don't think I really 
it didn't register with me to do that. I was, I just looked at them and looked at something I'd like to do uh, or just have somewhere I'd like to spend my time. So I was like, Intel. I'm like, okay, that's me, Intel. Um, so I went to Intel school for 16 weeks and you have to wait on either side for your class up for like a month, you know, that sort of a thing. So it ended up being a long time um, uh, just in Damneck, Virginia Beach area uh, for Intel school there. Uh, Namitsi, Navy Marine Corps Intelligence Training Center, I think so. Um, but I got to be very good at mopping. I mopped the bottom floor in the morning and then I had lunch, worked out, came back, did the upper floor in the afternoon, then went and swam or ran. And we had a good solid crew, guys you know, that, uh, that were all together there, uh, that came through together, did Intel School That's together, cool. did BUDS together, SQT together, and then went to separate teams. Some of us went to the same, but uh, uh, it was a good, it was a awesome. good solid crew. It's yeah, awesome we stayed focused happens. and uh, you know, there's no program. You couldn't Google any, you know, CrossFit or, you know, BUDS training program. So it was just, yep. uh, just us kind of making it up. I think that that's key, man, you know, for kids these days too, is seek that brotherhood, seek that friendship. You know, when you have other men, the other people keeping you accountable, there's power to that, yeah. you know, and really being able to check in. I feel like a lot of guys, and, and that's guys rise to the top and they have their friendships and friendships are forged throughout that time. But even being more deliberate ahead of time, I think guys lack that now because it mm. is so social media driven. Mm -hmm. You kind of just show up, you check the box and you leave. Mm. It's like seeking that local community, that local crew. Like even yeah. me and John, you know, best friends growing up, yeah. you know, being able to do that together side by side, you having that crew, still talking to those dudes today at this yeah. point. It's like, again, getting back to that mm -hmm. of what's really you know, gonna help guys, you know, make yeah. it and push each other. Yeah, and guys ask me all the time, what should I do? And, you know, the, you know, they can Google and find out all that, all the different things you can do. Um, but it's really, it's testing yourself. Like you can be in great shape and uh, do these programs, but if that program isn't testing you uh, to the point where essentially you wanna stop, like for me growing up, I grew up in essentially mountains and ran hills. Yep. and uh, trail running before trail running was a thing, before yes. they made specific shoes for trail running or whatever, I was running trails. And uh, cause I thought this is tough. And I, you know, when you're running up a hill, uh, you want to stop and yep. I didn't. And that's so why I always, but I was always thinking, like I was thinking about those things that guys did in World War II, Vietnam, you know, cause you're thinking about Vietnam books and stuff. And you're thinking about them running through the jungle and slitting throats Creeping, and all that stuff. And so, and peeking, and, yep. you know, you're, you're running, but that stuff and then jujitsu, like I started jujitsu early when people hadn't even heard of it yet, early 90s. And uh, still to this day, one of the hardest things that, uh, that I've ever done is doing that, doing you know, a promotion or whatever, uh, where you're on the mat and they send in fresh people, like six people, and you're just there for who knows, because there's no stopwatch and you're just going an hour, two hours, whatever, and you just keep going. And it's like, it's a, you know, survival. I talk about prevailing. I know you do talk, talk about it too. There are two different things, but you're on that mat and here comes somebody fresh. And here comes somebody fresh and yeah. here comes somebody fresh and you don't get off to take a break. Um, and I still remember, so in buds running on that soft sand on those swims, I would think back to that. Um, I would think about Iwo Jima, I'd think about Normandy. I'd think about, Hey, you know, those guys gave me this opportunity to be here. Uh, I can swim a little longer here. I can do a few more pushups. I can get yelled at in sunny Southern California. It's, it's, Honor, it's okay. Yeah. But on the physical side, I thought back to being on those mats. And so I think boxing and jujitsu for people still, like if you're in that ring and they're putting fresh people through, or you're doing those boxing workouts, or you're on that mat and you're doing those jujitsu workouts, like I still think about that today and how difficult that was, but that really helped me in buds. And then even in, cause in boot camp, you got out of shape in boot camp. That was awful. You know, you're marching everywhere and you're eating that horrible food and yeah. you're like, 
So, uh, so I got in, I mean, I was still in fine shape, fine. But, uh, but at night, I remember we had wrestlers because most people in the country back then, if you were you know, coming from out of high school into the military, a lot of guys had wrestled. And I didn't wrestle, but I did jujitsu. And no one had even heard of it, really. And UFC had started a couple years prior, maybe, so people had started to. Yeah. But I had a little bit of a head start. But back then, you know, if you could do, do a guard, do an arm bar, a mount, like, help, like four things, then you were like head and shoulders above most of everybody else. Uh, I did plateau there, of course, but uh, I remember moving the bunks in boot camp to the side oh, and getting cool. out there with wrestlers on the ground because I thought, hey, here's my workout now. And they did not know what to do with jujitsu back awesome. then. It was, it was really cool. And it did get, you know, got a, some, some workouts in. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we worked out, got to buds, and, uh, and it was, you know, Looking back, it was all fantastic. Um, but you made it through the fourth year original class, or how did that? How, what was hard for you and Buds? Did you do you have struggle with anything? Yeah, no, I, I made it all the way through. There, of course, there were challenges along the way. I just feel like once I really committed my mind to it, it just there was no option anymore. Yeah, and so I feel like I'm pretty good at diving into the deep parts of my brain and kind of reprogramming myself. You know, that's what I do every day now. That's what I've really focused on post-military career as mm -hmm. well. But in the beginning, you know, even the idea of the bell or quitting, I kind of started to erase that idea, mm -hmm. you know? And I don't know if, if lying to yourself is the right way to frame it, but you're convincing yourself of an alternate truth, that that's just not reality. It's just not mm -hmm. real and it's not possible for me. So the whole way through Buds, quitting was never even close to an option. That only out was either death or just something was going to break. Yep. And I, I never forget, right before Buds even kicked off, I was doing the in-dock phase. And I was on the beach trying to push myself. I would go do things by myself all the time. And I went out and I rolled my ankle, like pretty severely, more than I have in the past, on some soft sand. And I mean, we were getting ready to class up in about two weeks. And I remember calling my mother, being like, hey, mom, you know, here I am, 17, 18 years old, like, hey, rolled my ankle, feeling really sorry for myself, and I'll just never forget her voice. She was like, snap the heck out of it. She's like, get over it. She's like, I don't care if your leg's falling off, you're gonna push through. And I was like, that was the voice that I needed to hear, as small or as big as that would have been. Mm -hmm. just, the, just the emphasis on reminding parents how important their voice is, how important their encouragement is, yeah. because that was just the, the, the nail that I needed yeah. to say, that's it. No matter what happens to me, I'm gonna push through. Because I allowed myself to kind of play victim. Like, mm -hmm. and we do that to ourselves. Well, my ankle. So I'd have an excuse. I love that in today's culture and our brains. You, everybody's got an excuse. And you can play these games with yourself inside of your head. But it's taken that personal accountability to be like, who cares what anybody else thinks and what I could mm -hmm. get away with? It's what I know. When I go to bed at night, could I wake up and go? Yeah. That's the real question. That's the real fight. I don't care what you think. I don't care what anybody else thinks about my ankle. Mm -hmm. And that kind of just pushed me into my career um, just with that same attitude and mindset. Challenging, it's really tough to, to go back and think about this. Let's like see. Like you were good on the swims after getting better I mean, in. I was always just like struggling to, to get by. On the swims. But I mean, I was always like that. I started that way. Yeah. So I always, always just appreciated the fact that it was like, it was always a fight. Mm -hmm. Like a run was never just like, oh, there was just the four miler today, okay. all good. I mean, I pushed everything I did, okay. I had to push. The swims I had to push. But I was passing stuff and I would, I don't, did I ever fail a run? I mean, they played games with us and there mm. were runs that we failed that we mm. had to do again and, and everything like that. I can't think of anything that really like 
kicked my butt to the point yeah. where I was like, oh my goodness, this might, I might not pass this. Because yeah. I just I would, threw my whole heart and soul into doing it. You know, pool comp, that was an interesting uh, phase. But I loved being under the water. So you, I already, like you already- I uh, had fun with that. Were we already surfing stuff before that? Like, or I didn't like- surf. That's something I'm still figuring out how to do, yeah, by yeah. the way. Like the one team guy that doesn't surf. I, I don't, I'm not very good. <laughs> I got a long one. I got a nine foot four right now that I'm still trying to figure out how to navigate. I bought a surfboard after Buds. I bought a bow and a surfboard. Um, and that surfboard, and actually I actually didn't buy the surfboard. Then I had somebody, in, I bought the bow after Buds. And then I wanted to buy a surfboard, but I didn't. So I just decided on the bow. I went up to, to performance archery, got a bow. That was my present to myself. Later, I had two, second platoon, I had like a couple of world-class surfers in my platoon. Awesome guys. That's cool. So I got a board shaped in IB. And then we're, I'm like, okay, this is going to be my opportunity. Like I've tried my whole life. I'm like, I grew up on the water, like at water mountains and not good, right? I'm not good at, uh, at surfing. Um, but I'm like, this is my opportunity because we're going to Guam. Nothing's happening in the world. Uh, we'll do a couple trips here and there. And so I got this board shaped and then we went to Guam and then September 11th happened a week later. And uh, to me, two weeks later, I think we had a trip right away. And then we came back and September 11th happened. So two weeks into it, that board sat in my room in Guam when we went to the Middle East, sat there the whole time, never touched salt water. That board never touched salt water until uh, we took it to the beach with, uh, with our daughter um, 10 years later uh, <laughs> after that in Coronado. That was the first time it had ever touched salt water. It traveled around with us to all the different places we'd been, never touched salt water. So yeah, yeah surfing's still something. I was just looking for my boy because he's the one that actually pushed me to get into surfing. Nice. He picked up on it and he just was digging me in the water. I'm like, okay, cool. Something my boy and I can do. I should probably learn how to do this anyway. So I went and bought a, uh, a long board. And since then I've been playing around with it a little nice. bit. But it's like any one of these hobbies, man. You know, we have so many things that we want to get into. You mentioned the bow. We got surfing, spearfishing, yeah. fishing, uh, fighting, skiing. You know, there's all these different elements. And in today's day and age where it's so tempting to go down all of them, mm-hmm. I feel like really picking a few yeah. that you can dial the precision in is a better, more exciting and fulfilling hunt yeah. of that of that craft than being scatterbrained. Yeah. You know, I really do. And that's tough to say. And I think that exploring them, this is personal, right? And maybe it connects with some people. I think exploring them is fine. Like, hey, you want to go skiing? Well, I don't ski much, but let's go. Cool. But really diving into like the three that you know, like these are mine. Right. That this is who I am. Right. This is who God called me to be. You yeah. Know? Oh, man. I think that that's, that's key. Because like, I even get ADD with hearing you talk. I'm like, man, I really, <laughs> I really do need to get a bow. I see What's you guys that? shooting the bow. I see all the guys out there shooting the bow. Yeah, yeah. A lot and of guys I love are getting shooting into it. Bow. I've shot a bow. Yeah. But it's just, if I do it, I'm going to geek out with it. I'm going to go buy the best bow. I'm going to spend yeah. time on it. And that's going to take away from something else. Right. You know? Yeah, you can only do so much. Yeah. So you got to prioritize. And uh, yeah, I still love shooting the bow. Um, still not very good at surfing. Obviously, I'm not surrounded by any place that I can surf here. So it's all mountain oriented now where we live. Which um, I love, by the way. What's that? I said, I love the mountains, but, you and it's beautiful. Ocean. Like, I love being out here, but there's no okay. bodies of open water. And that, no. that I have a problem with. Yeah, I know. So it's a great place to visit. Yeah, yeah. If I do love mountains and ocean together, you know, so I love that Pacific Northwest. I love uh, all the, the coast of British Columbia, Alaska. Like, yeah. I love the rough, like, I love pretty much from the middle of California on up where it turns into the more rougher cliffs rocks where it gets gets to that and then then all the way up like for whatever reason that's my that's my environment but um 
you know, there's some other things about California, Oregon, and Washington that make them less appealing, unfortunately. And here, yeah. uh, a little, feel a little more free yeah. up here in the mountains. It does feel that way here. Yeah, when we crossed the border from California, uh, it just felt free when we moved out here after the military. It's just, we're driving across, I distinctly remember it. Uh, we had one, one child was in the back, two others were at camp, we had the U-Haul behind us, and we we're driving out here and we crossed that border, and it just felt, Maybe that's because all my magazines all of a sudden became legal. Wait a sec, we'll have to edit that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, but we love it up here. You just, you just we just felt more more free as soon as we as we got here. But um, but you were always comfortable in the water because you grew up near. What were you doing in the water growing up that made you comfortable when you got to to pool comp? Quite quite a few things. I mean, my dad always had a boat. You know, nice. being on a boat is part of who I am. Yeah. Like I just there's a certain sense of peace I have with it. So I grew up on the water. Grew up jumping off the back of the boat. You know, when I was younger. I want to say 14, about 13 or 14 years old, I worked with a guy named Wayne right down the road. And I used to hang out with his son. But the way he would make his living is he would go out into the ocean and he would dive for clams. Nice. And the interesting thing is about up dive. in New England, people always rake. It yeah. was like, I don't know if people know the rakers, right? They break their back. I mean, they'll work wow. 12 hour days and only fill up a couple of bushels. Wow. So Wayne, was a guy I actually went and did a lot of hunting with. That's actually how our relationship built. He's like, hey, I'm going to go hunting. I was like, oh, what are you going for? Deer. I was like, I'm in. So nice. he'd come pick me up at 3.30, 4, 4 o'clock in the morning. And so one of my mentors, an influence in my life, mm -hmm. really making a big impact on me, how to track, how to find the trails, nice. you know, uh, where to go, you know, what I'm doing with my firearm. And so that was a long journey for me that, that really led to a lot of fruit. But his job was to go out and die for clams. No way. So he's like, hey, I could use some help if you want to come help me on the boat and do some sifting and get in there. And I'd go on the boat with him. He'd be down for an hour or two hours. He would go do, switch out his tanks. He'd go down to like 18, 20 feet. He'd be sitting there raking off the bottom. I mean, the technique that he has, mind-blowing. Where guys were raking all day for 12 hours that would get two bushels, he would do this for about an hour and a half to two hours and fill up 10 bags of little necks and clams. Dang. He would go cash in. He would make about... 2,500 bucks, $3,000 in about two hours. So he'd work for three months of the year yeah. and hunt for the rest of the year. Nice. So that was this guy's lifestyle. Okay. It was like a gold mine. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was always one of those things that we kind of just didn't talk about very much. But I'd help him on the boat. And then eventually it led me to the point where he's like, hey, you want to jump in the water with me? I was nice. like, sure. Went and got my diving certification cool. with John. Nice. Uh, we held each other accountable there. And then I would be down in the water. Totally breaking some of the rules, I'm sure, with dive tables. Yeah. You know, down there with a fin on my hand. Yeah. You know, picking up uh, clams. And, and we just made a, a ton of money when I was like 14 nice. years old. And, okay. And that was a big part of one of my experiences. And then John and I would go down to the end of the road. I would go surf torture myself sometimes at the end of the road, which is totally not recommended by anybody, by yeah. the way. Have a swim buddy. <laughs> but uh, that was something just being in New England, that cold, frigid water. Yeah. It was just normal to me. Right. I didn't think about it. Right. You, the water was cold. You went in the water when the water was cold. Yeah. You know, I didn't even really have great wetsuits or anything like oh, that. Oh, so. yeah. I got certified when I was nine. I don't even think you were supposed to get certified that young. Um, but my dad talked him, talked him into it. And I remember I have a picture of me somewhere where I have the wetsuit where it's just like past my arms and my feet like past there because they didn't make kid wetsuits back. That was 1982, <laughs> 83. And uh, yeah, so it was just as I'm like this, you know, uh, and it's Northern California where it is cold and dark when you're starting. Like it is dark up there and uh, when you go down. Um, so I was comfortable in the water. I think that really helped actually. Yeah. Um, and I really does. liked it. Buds, I remember, was it drown proof? Not drown proofing, life saving in life -saving. first phase. Yeah. Because that's the only time, or that and pool comp are the only times where it's like, 
me and you, instructor, because usually you get yelled at. You know, you get pull the shops. They're telling yes. you you're horrible. You're never going to make it. And you're more pull ups, more push ups, run, whatever. Um, but this time, now it's hands on. And uh, I love that. And uh, the jujitsu helped with life saving too, because when you have that, uh, what was it, a, a victim or whatever, and they're yeah. just thrashing about and they're trying to take clearing, you down or whatever, yeah. yeah, and you can just relax. And they're trying to drag you to the bottom, and they've done you know five or six, seven, eight people in your line in, on the side of the pool, and they drag you to the bottom. Well, if they're working, guess what I'm doing? I'm just, I'm just relaxing, yep. just like in jujitsu, just getting that, you know, getting that that place where you're take, getting relaxed for a second. The other person is is doesn't know what they're doing or freaking out or whatever. So I was very comfortable. And I know they're going to have to come up for air, and they did. And then I that's when I do my thing and get a little couple inches closer to the wall, a couple feet closer, and then they do it again and get down, just relax. Yep. So I love that. So I think the jujitsu plus being comfortable in the water uh, really helps with that and with pool comp because once again, it's you against the instructor. Even though your hands are on the instructor, their hands are on you, and they're pushing you and slamming you to the bottom of the pool and doing that whole thing, tying your hoses in knots, but still you against them. It's more mind, but it's still you against them. You just relax while they're doing that, just like you would in jiu-jitsu or anything, and then you just go through those procedures in the right order to get everything back, yeah. turn your air back on, and keep going. So uh, being comfortable is, uh, in the water, I think that's, that, was, that was important for that, those two phases. Yeah, that's why I always recommend free diving. You know, and being at depth, learning how to control your heart rate, learning how to stay calm underwater, that applies to just about everything in your life. Mm -hmm. You know, being able to have that demeanor in a dynamic environment is critical. It's something that you need to practice. I mean, I think that's why surfers are really good at it too. Because you get grabbed by that that yeah. wave and you get pulled under. Mm -hmm. Like fighting that is not gonna help you. Yeah. Keep yourself protected, but stay calm. You yeah. gotta conserve your energy. You gotta figure out how to be fluid yeah. and be like water in some cases. But uh, there was a lot of circumstances. I mean, it was, experience after experience. I mean, I've got all kinds of stories. One was, you know, my dad was painting a house across this channel. And when the when the uh, current gets going, it ramps up pretty strong. I mean, okay. I don't know how many miles per hour it's going through there, 10, 20, 15, maybe. And so he's working on the house and I actually was fishing on the shore. So he's like, hey, make sure you wear your life jacket on the, you know, the shore over there because I'm not going to be supervising you. So I'm over there casting the, you know, the pole in. And I'm like, well, let me go a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper and trying to get like a good spot. And the current grabbed me and kicked my feet out underneath me. And I've got both poles in my hand that I didn't want to let go. And I think it was my tackle box and my pole I had in my hand. <laughs> I just, here I am in the current no getting way. taken out all by myself. And I had, I had to swim to the other side. And so that was just one of those circumstances from a young age. I'm like, oh, I had to work through that. Right? I wasn't not going to make it, but it was right. an eye-opening, like, well, I could definitely get taken out and, you know, have Dang. to fight to Do you hold on? Do you keep them? Oh, I kept them. Like the river runs through it. Remember, remember Brad Pitt in the 100%. river? And they're like yeah. going down and he's holding on to the fish and he's never, floating down, I think. I haven't seen that in a long never time. Never let go of your gun. Never <laughs> let go of your fishing pole. Like, there you never go. let that thing go. Yeah, know? yeah. That's oh, what man. it became. So little things like that just sprinkled throughout my upbringing. But being around the water is dynamic, and it's something that I think everybody grows from. Yeah, you know? that's why getting kids in the pool at an early age is really important too. Yeah, no, I think so. Early. So you make it through, make it through buds, and first team is team two. Team two, and this is that's why I cross paths with you. Um, yes. What year do you get to that team two? Team two was two thousand and one. Two thousand and one. When yeah. September 11th? Where were you? I was 11th? in the buds classroom at September 11th. So no what phase? Uh, it was first. First phase. Yes, first phase. Yep, just sitting there. Buildings, you know, went down and literally in buds. Because the pre-9-11 decision, like, this is what I'm going to go do. Mm -hmm. You know, you have the commitment to, like, you hear the stories, you ask questions, like, where are we going? When are we getting into the fight? How can we go do what we're signing up for? 
And then having that realization of being like, oh, you know, we're actually at war now. Yeah. Like it solidified it for everybody that was in that era, mm. I think, you know, especially in that class. Yeah. So that was an interesting spot to be in. But yeah, that's right about when it happened. And did an instructor come in or did, uh, was somebody teaching at the time and get pulled out? I, can't, I think happened? Might have, they might have even turned the TV on. Yeah. You know, it was like that big of a deal where like we don't watch anything on the TV and they're right. like, hey, they flick the TV on, they're like, look what's going on. No like, this just got really real. It was a sobering moment in the Bud's yeah. classroom. You know, like, you have all the instructors. You see it on the instructor's face. You're like, oh, okay, there's something real going on right now. You know, and, and then that's when we were like, okay, we're here. This is why we're here. You yeah, know, okay. that, that's the whole vibe that just kept right. throughout my entire career. You know, I showed up to team two and we hit the ground running. First deployment was right to Afghanistan. Yeah. It was like, boom, we're in it, right? Right there. And we yeah. kind of knew working up to that, that our, our workup was that intense. So as a new guy, I didn't just come into a platoon being like, oh, we don't know, really know where we're going. Yeah. All the guys that had been there for a while be like, hey, you're a new guy, but you better act like you're going to war because we are. Yeah. So we always had that intensity of like, this is real. Right. We'll screw up. We're here for a reason. Yeah. And we were all fighting for that spot on team two to get that deployment, right? Yeah. To go to Afghanistan. So we tried really hard. And I feel like our platoon specifically was just adamant about you know, doing uh, DAs, doing direct assaults, doing room clearance. I mean, we did that so much, even at team two, mm -hmm. which previous to that, that was kind of rare, yeah. doing it that much, that much of an emphasis. But knowing that that's what we're gonna do, and we, that's exactly what we did. We went to Afghanistan, and first operation was clearing however many compounds, I wanna say 50 different connecting compounds all in this giant village. It was just our, wow. it was our platoon kicking down all those doors systematically. Wow. People were getting shot, we were finding drugs, finding Shh. weapons, finding caches. I mean, it was an all day event. Right, at, uh, right as the sun comes up, flying right into the poppy fields in the Chinook, loading the ramp down, running right to the target with a platoon, spent all day clearing, and then leaving right out of the same poppy field. That was my first operation. No kidding. Literally going into tunnels, you know, passing wheelbarrows of you know, marijuana, and all this stuff that was being built, it was a, it was a drug farm, clearly. Yeah. And yeah, I just remember that being like, wow, okay, we're, this is real, we're in it. No you know? I don't know how many weeks we were there for, I wanna say like a week and a half or two weeks before that op kicked off. No way. So yeah, that was my first experience. That is, and you do more of those throughout that deployment? That's all that was. That's all our deployment was. If we weren't doing that on a direct action, we were doing the presence patrols, which mm. we all loved doing wow. uh, mobility. Okay. And so we were going from fob to fob, uh, we were going uh, from Bagram to Kandahar. We did that trip multiple times and we would shoot off into different villages. And then uh, Hindu Kush, right? It was in Hindu Kush where it was uh, Deshopan. Huh. You know, we were in that area, spent a lot of time in that area, which was just sketchy. You know, I've, I've told that story before about, you know, that being the first time that really we got blown up, you know, in a convoy where the, the vehicle in front of me ended up getting shredded and the tailpipe hit me in the head. Um, that, that was gnarly. That, Were you in the turret? I was in the turret. I was the number one truck for our convoy. So I was in the lead truck on everything that we did. So you know, the, the mm. tension that's behind that because you're just waiting. Um, I had a lot of that, okay, I'm, it could go off at any moment for like the first month of the deployment. Uh -huh. And eventually I just let all that tension go mm -hmm. being like, okay, if this happens, like I just, just hopefully it takes me quick. Yeah. You know, and it just goes off. But uh, rolling around in that presence patrol, that was an interesting operation where we had gone really deep in and we thought there was a pass. 
we ended up finding out like Apaches flew over and then they were like, it's unpassable, but we wanted to see. So we were like all the way up into the crevice, as far as you could possibly get up in there. And it was blocked. And so we knew, I was like, we have to turn around now. It would go right back through. We, were, yeah, we knew there was guys trying to set up on us already. Mm-hmm. So I was like, this is imminent. This is gonna happen. And so when we turned everybody back around, we ended up making a little bit of a campsite and when that campsite was set up, we knew we had to continue through, but there was uh, the foreign nationals with us. Mm. And then there was the army group that was supporting okay. the foreign nationals. So they were connected. Yeah. We ended up doing the interop and connecting on the way up. Okay. So we had intersected. So when we're leaving, we knew that these guys set up on us at this point. They wow. were like talking about it. The ambush is set. They're waiting for you to come out. There's only one road out, you know? So now we're like talking uh, to, amongst each other and they're like, all right, we're gonna lead this crew out. You know, we're gonna be the number one truck because we got the navigation. And as the new guy, and this being my first deployment, I'm feeding off of my guys. And I'm just like, okay, I'm just gonna follow your guys' lead. But I knew they were upset about this because they had known that we were getting set up on. Yeah. And there was some very gray things that were going on between the foreign nationals and the chatter. So like where that was coming from and how they were getting their information, yeah. still to this day, I don't really know. Yeah. But ultimately what happened was the fact that we knew that we were gonna get set up on and our guys were pretty upset that we were gonna be the first ones to go out. Uh. And be that as it may, the decision finally was made after about an hour of really arguments. Mm. Like guys were actually physically yelling at each other about this idea. Yeah. And the leadership worked it out where the foreign nationals were gonna go, and then it was gonna be the army guys, and then it was gonna be us. Okay. And so that was the decision that was made. And as we were going through, probably about a good 45 minutes to an hour on that route, um, you know, just the explosion went off, boom! Just went, I thought it was us at first, you know, it was that, like it felt like everything just shook, and then I had that piece of the tailpipe smack the top of my helmet. Dang. And so I had to do the whole like, you know, right. the whole check. Yeah. And I did that for a second. Like, did I have any shrapnel in my Holy. neck? And we were just yelling contact. Of course, I had no idea where the contact yeah. was coming from, but that's what we had drilled. Like, contact right. where, you know? And, you know, I'm checking my guys. We're all communicating with each other. Yeah. You're right, you're right. Dust was just, you're breathing in dust at this point. You can't see anything in front of you. Wow. And when the dust settled, you know, as we started to go, because we knew it was an IED, so it was like, don't get out of your trucks, don't move. Everybody froze in place. And when the dust settled, the, the army Humvee in front of me was just shred to pieces and flipped over. Wow. And uh, the interpreter was instantly killed because he was on the wheel well. It ended up being a double stack uh, Italian mine hmm. that was in the road. And Jeez. there was seven Hiluxes of the foreign nationals ahead of mm-hmm. that army truck. Now, yep. do the math, man. Yep. You know, I'll let you, you know, think about that yourself, right? Uh It's just the coincidence of that being the next vehicle and then them going off. So there was a long process that ensued at that point. We had the EOD guys deploy. They went and searched the road. We were trying to figure out what was going on, what our next moves were. I mean, I'm thinking there's secondaries all over the place. Why wouldn't there be? Mm -hmm. I'm waiting for bullets to start ripping in into the dust. You know, that's what I was worried about because I was on the turret. So I'm just scanning. I've got my, no, I'm just looking. I mean, I didn't. You on a 50? I'm on a 50. Yeah, I had the Mod Deuce, which I love that thing. I had an intimate relationship with my, my Mod Deuce. And 
that eventually led to, you know, nothing else followed on, but we had the air support immediately came over. Uh, we had all the guys deployed looking for secondaries and scanning uh, with, with metal detectors. And ultimately we ended up having to wait to, to get that helo out of there, get uh, medevac mm-hmm. out. You know, they all got called in and then we left that day. But that was probably the, the first like real interaction that I had. Yeah. Um, we had, with, with an explosive anyway, you know, in, in team two. Yeah. So there was a lot of that already prepping me for where I was about to go, you know, going to the command and, and doing that. Yeah. Because I feel like IEDs were just a part of the, the flow. Right. You know, IEDs just became a, like, you know, every week we were seeing right. some, something blew themselves up, you yeah. know. But yeah, anyway. Dude, that's wild. And you did more of those patrols? Did you ever work with those, uh, those uh, the post-nation force or again? I don't think that we linked back up with them at that point that I can remember off the top of my head. We may have, I'm just not recalling it right now. Jeez. And so, so that's your first team two deployment and you come back and you do another workup and deployment at at two? Do another workup, another deployment at two. And where'd you guys go for Uh, that one? Because this is where I meet up with you. This is where I hear about you for the first time. I think we passed each other in the hallway a few times. We're in different, uh, different troops uh, at team two. But I hear about you, and I might have, you know, a lot of time has passed since then, but I thought that I first heard about you was being in a, you being in a gun truck on the 50, and I thought it was Iraq, uh, and an, on an, an alleyway holding security, and somebody, bad guy came out, and you, like, light him up. Yeah. I think that's the first time I heard about, yeah. about you, and because uh, it was people, everyone was like, oh man, awesome, and uh, <laughs> like, who was it, you know, and they said you, and I was like, oh man, that's, I think that's the first time that, other than in, like, in passing, you know, that, uh, that I re- distinctly remember hearing about you, is, yeah, uh, is that, was that Iraq, was that, that was that Afghanistan, happened? that was Afghanistan, yeah, okay, that was Afghanistan. okay. yeah, and uh, that was, that was an interesting circumstance as well, you know, we had, I was so upset that I was not on the assault. Uh-huh. So upset. But as a new guy, I'm kind of just like gritting my teeth, like, all right, I didn't get picked to go inside the building today. Uh, and again, you have all the veterans that are mm-hmm. in there that have been there for a while that have been doing this. But they wanted me on the gun because I was the number one truck. And because the number one truck was in, we had to push past the main entry point. So when we pushed past the main entry point, they needed me up on the turret to cover down on everything that was past the entry point. So there was no way of getting out of, out of it for me. Yeah. Everybody else in the middle trucks could kind of cheat it. They could come out of the yeah. turret because they didn't have a word up. They're staring at a wall. Okay. Um, so I just was in that position. It was my gun. I just got luck <laughs> of the draw. But uh, I ended up in the middle of the assault. I had a dude with a gun run around the flank of the, uh, the building. And he just, it literally like the clouds parted. and just He just came around the corner. I'm like... I didn't go on the assault. This is my moment. <laughs> like, Here, get on the gun. You know? Yeah. Um, or else, if we hadn't been covered down on that, that guy would have came right up the middle. But yeah. Yeah, that that was that was that circumstance. I think it was the same. That's one exactly it. That's yeah. the exact story that I heard from people. Nobody's talking about it, you know, because yeah. if you weren't there, you know, you're like, oh man, if you weren't in a fight and a fight happened, especially if it was from your team, you know, you know who's involved, what happened. And I distinctly remember people talking about about you in that in that case and uh, and how how amazing that was. Um, man, that is. Uh, That's funny. Yeah. Was, <laughs> that was my that was my first real time. Um, like that close, yeah. you know, and I had other circumstances on that. And to think that that was team two right. at the time, yeah. it was kind of a mind blowing and, and kind of different way of thinking too, because 
really team two was kind of in a little bit of a lull before we mm. really start going back overseas with, with Afghanistan and Iraq. So for us to get that much experience at team two for mm. my first deployment, it made my whole career very real. Interesting. It wasn't like I was sitting around doing anything. All this training is absolutely real. I mean, I had hand-to-hand confrontations at Team 2. Wow. I had multiple engagements at Team 2. Yeah. And so that was before I even got to the command. That's wild. You know, it really was. It really was. I, I'm very thankful for the experience that I got there, and I'm thankful for the guys that I looked up to as well. Uh, so many of them, Goody, Ben, uh, guys that I was really close to me that guided me along the path. Yeah. Being like, you got to be in this position, you know? Yeah. So... Were you already into combatives at that point, or did you, that first confront? You were. I was. So it wasn't I, like that first confrontation, like. And what was that first confrontation like, where you had to go? Were you dealing with a prisoner? Yeah, um, it was a lot of prisoner handling. Um, I had multiple times where I had to go in and grab the guy and be the one to cuff him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't anything as intense as it got when I was at the command. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely, definitely stepped up there, but but we were putting our hands on people. Yeah. You know, every other day. That's why it was still real to me. When I checked into Team Two. I immediately was like, hey, what are, you, what are you guys doing for fighting around here? Mm-hmm. Right, and I could get into this as a whole other subject. Yeah, yeah. Here, but I was like, what are you guys doing for fighting? I'm like, oh, well, you know, not really anything. And I'm like, what? Like, I did check into team too, right? Yeah, yeah. I did check into a SEAL team. And that was a spark for me as well to continue that path because like, yeah, there's this guy, Frank Cucci. Yeah, yeah. He's like 45 minutes away. You got to go to his gym. Right. And I remember I found his gym, got my butt kicked. I'm pretty sure... Uh, I'll, I'll keep his name out of this, yeah. but uh, one of the guys that I really respected the command, he's out now, uh, he ended up kicking the crap out of me the first wow. couple of times on the mat, and I had no idea who he was. Really? So hindsight, kind of knowing who he was today, yeah, yeah. I was like, I'm glad that was the first guy that be, uh, beat me up. But really eye-opening experience to know that we don't have any standards here. And I knew that right right out of the gate. And that was something I was passionate about, which really, really clung on to. I, t- I told you about picking things three things or mm-hmm. a, multiple, a couple of things you're really passionate about. And combatives for me was one of those things. Yeah, You know, no matter where we were, no matter what tent we were in, no matter what fob we were in, I was shadow boxing, I was training, I was working on it, I would try to find a bag, I would go through the visualization of the movements, and I did that my entire career, even at, even at Team 2. So I was always very interested in it, always knew it was something we needed a lot of work on, yeah. and I think that that's what led me to where I am today and kind of understanding why I do what I do today, you know? Right. I remember Frank Cucci was on the on the cover of a now defunct magazine yeah. <laughs> uh, called it was called something I want to say Combatives, but maybe that's because it's just in my head because this is the 1990 I want to say 1994 and uh, maybe someone could find it and it'll be like 95, but it was right in that time right. time frame right there. But I distinctly remember finding out about Frank Cucci. I think he had a couple videos maybe, but for sure on the cover, it wasn't Kung Fu Magazine, but it was something like Empty Hand Combat Magazine or something like that. You know, one of these like spinoffs of like a, a black belt meets soldier of fortune type of a, a magazine. And I, I've got to still have it in a box somewhere because I've thrown awesome. none of these things That'd be away. A um, yeah. You'd have to post about that. If, I, you if I find I that, <laughs> I will post about that for sure. But I remember seeing that and being you know, on the other coast and the East Coast might as well have been outer space, you know, for me at that yeah. point. Um, but I wanted to, so, because I was training with different people, uh, trying to find people that had worked with the military or whatever, trying to find things that were practical. Um, even back then, you know, right. Jeet Kune Do kind of was that because it would take what's useful, discard what's useless. You That's know, correct. Bruce Lee's Same methodology uh, applies today. Yeah, exactly. And so they're bringing in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. That's how I got involved with it. So it's like elbows, knees, headbutt, straight blast. And then, oh, this Jiu-Jitsu thing, let's work that in. Um, but I remember Frank Cucci being on there, SEAL, you know, from that command. I was like, oh, this is like, this is my path. Yeah. Uh, this is my guy right here. Um, so it was interesting when I got to the East Coast, 
Um, they were bringing in, when I, when I got to Team 2 around that time, they are bringing somebody in that was strictly jiu-jitsu, though, that would come in Tuesday and Thursday mornings, I want to say, um, in some one of the gyms up above in one of the, the training areas. So I'd go over there and roll, and I forget his name right now. He had a studio uh, somewhere in, uh, maybe not Virginia Beach, but in Norfolk. Um, but so we did that. But I was shocked when I got to the SEAL teams early on, even way before September 11th, how little uh, empty hand, unarmed combat, uh, martial arts was incorporated into into the training. You really had to go and do it on the outside on your own. You did, you know, back then. You, you had, had to make it one of your things, it. as yep. you said, as you as you said. Um, and uh, so I was, I was. That was one of the things that surprised me. Also surprised me that we weren't immediately off flying around the world doing the Save the Princess operation and flying back for beers the next night. Like uh, it wasn't just that was not how it was before September 11th. And right. it took September 11th to do the things that we thought we were going to do when we came in. That's correct. Um, but Team Two was a great experience for me. We had a lot of guys from your next command that had maybe gotten in trouble or whatever else that were now at Team Two and uh, from pre-September 11th stuff, but they were bringing yeah. some of that knowledge over there, that mindset that over there. We had a really good- chiefs. I had yeah. the opportunity to have one of those guys there with me too. Yep. Yeah, we had a whole slew. I think all of them were like that, I think, at that time frame. Which was just like a gem. Like what, yeah. a, what a blessing to have those guys back, you know, because mm -hmm. when guys go there, especially now, you don't really plan on leaving to go anywhere. Right. Like this is, this is home. You know mm -hmm. how in it you are how much of a sacrifice it has to be. So like you said, whether they were in trouble or not, or whatever the case was, <laughs> but it, so be it. Um, they weren't there by choice, but to our benefit. To our benefit, yeah. true, yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. And they were great. They were fantastic. I think all the, the troop that's chiefs. That's part of the reason that I got there. I mean, the guy that pushed me, and I basically said, as soon as I even knew that the command was an option, mm -hmm. they're like, hey, you know, who's interested in this? You know, I believe they asked the whole platoon and we're mm -hmm. all sitting there and I was just like, "Yeah," you know? And then like only a couple guys rose their hand and I'm kind of like, right. shouldn't we be all striving to get to this next level? Yeah. And they told us, they're like, hey, this is great. You know, whatever status you have here, say bye to all of it. You're taking the freaking trash out again yeah. and you got to basically go to the lowest level. Then you got to be okay with that. And I'm like, Probably well, that. that's how you forge. Mm -hmm. I knew that. But my troop chief at the time helped put the pieces together to be able to get there. And this is just a kind of side sidebar here, but we're talking about that troop chief. So... Uh, Jimmy, he put me in the position to go screen and I screened and I actually had passed all my screening, but they're like, hey, you're too young. They're like, so you did well? I remember Come back this. next year. And I was like, oh, I remember so this. bummed, uh -huh. so bummed. So I went back to the platoon, told Jimmy as I came in, you know, didn't make it. Uh, they, I was too young. They're going to roll me to next year. So I was just like, okay, continue mission. Don't get discouraged. I think about... Three weeks later, he had said, hey, a couple of the guys bumped out of their spot and didn't make it through the screening. You're the next guy on the list. And I don't know how much fudging he did mm -hmm. in there, but I'm very grateful for whatever happened and transpired. Wow. And then I got the last spot of my class. Wow. And so I went in there and I was the youngest dude in my class to go screen. Nice. And I remember being the youngest guy to check in to my squadron. Wow. I remember That's I cool. looked at all the dates and I'm like, whoa, I was 23 years old to check into the squadron. That's I think awesome. I think it's been, I think it's might've been broke since then. Yeah. Uh, not by much. I mean, not you're, not, you're, not, you're not gonna break you that by much. You really yeah, yeah. can't. But however I pulled that off, it just, that's, that's where awesome. I was, man. Yeah. I was the newest, new, new, new guy yeah. when I checked in. So, Dude, that's, that's cool. amazing. Did, did you do another one at team two? How many points did you do it to? I did. That's the question you had asked me. So the second deployment, um, I, had, I had done my screening and then we deployed and man, like the, the chips that fell into place, I did a surveillance class 
with, with team two. And mm-hmm. some of the guys that, that we know came from overseas to teach us. And I ended up getting honor man in that class. So because I got honor man in the surveillance course, they pushed me to a part of the world that we were doing reduced signature stuff. Dang. So I was operating in a part of the world that we still can't to this day got talk it. about. And we were operating in that environment where I was, I had everything that I needed. I had a safe house, I had nice. all my vehicles. I had done all the TS, uh, TSE stuff. Mm-hmm. I knew it like the back of my hand. I loved getting into building and doing all that. So I had multiple things at my disposal. I had interpreters at my disposal. And I was there for a few months and man, what an experience contrasted from well, I'm kicking down a door and I'm in the turret. That's a lot of to presence really control, cool experience to, to have at a totally very young shift age. To now I got to dress like everybody else, look the part, find this parts of the city, take high value photo targets uh, and all those, those different elements, you know, no cre- creating routes to and from. I mean, it was super cool. That's super cool awesome. So that's why you didn't, you just, so you didn't do the PSD. So during when we took the PSD mission, that's what you were doing. Yep. Ah, yeah. cause I was trying to remember if you were at the PS doing the PSD because we, you know, we, we grab yeah. different troops and platoons, and we all kind of got mushed together to build this thing that became the protective yeah, we, service we, details for the uh, inner Iraqi government. But I was trying to remember because it was very possible you could have been there on a detail, and I was on a different one or whatever. Yeah, but uh, but we, you were doing that. Oh, that's luck, so cool. Luck of the draw. I got that package. Nice. And it was only me and like a yeah, me and like two or three other guys. Yeah, I went, and we were just bouncing around. I mean, mm-hmm. it was like, it was pretty cool, man. We had a whole 10,000 square foot safe house with like multiple, you know, options to choose from. And it was awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, one of the guys that was, so we we took the uh, the nomenclature from your next command at team two, because we had so many of those chiefs and senior chiefs yeah. and even a couple officers uh, over there as the CEO and ops boss at the time. Um, so the guy that was a team leader as an E6 uh, in that next deployment, Third one, anyway, fourth one maybe. But uh, we were both team leaders. Even though I was an O1, he was an E6. They changed the nomenclature to team. They're trying to structure everything like the command that you would, were going to go to next. Yeah. But he had come from doing what you did, yeah. so he had just come off of that. That's cool. Really long deployment. They bounced him to a couple different spots around the world doing those doing those kind of kind of missions. He was gone for a long. He's like off the radar, like doing that. Like they were just we're focused on Iraq right now. We're doing this PSD mission, and some guys are off doing some other stuff. They got kind of forgotten about. Like they didn't get, like they didn't come home. Like they were just gone for like. I think he was gone for like over a year, uh, bouncing around because he probably because he volunteered also to to stay or to take another something or other there. But uh, when he's out now and uh, awesome, awesome guy, she'll stay and stay in touch. Um, that's cool. But that's really amazing experience to that's have cool. as a new guy, very young, doing that Afghan deployment and then going and doing these reduced signature operations yeah. places and then going to the command that you, uh, you ended up going to. It set me up for success. That is like, incredible. I saw the best of both worlds. And with the love of combatives and knowing that that was kind of a gap mm-hmm. and, a, and a missing link, is like I had the assaulter, which I loved. I had the, the, the know that the combatives were missing and then I got to do the reduced signature. So it all just groomed me in preparation for exactly what I love to do today. Like that low vis kind of be prepared to get ready to do an assault, but do it where nobody can tell that you're going to do it. That's pretty you know, cool. And just put all the pieces together. Yeah. And so throughout that journey, I was like, oh, there's a gap. And I'm always like, I'm trying to tweak everything. I'm like, if there's a tactic that needs to be fixed or a piece of gear that needs to be uh-huh. fixed, it's like, that's what I love to do. Uh-huh. You know? And so, and then the next phase of my life was just surreal, right? Yeah. Like just thinking about all that. Yeah. You had a solid run. Yeah. 
Uh, <laughs> and you're at team two, even you're tweaking, tweaking gear there. You're was, morphing things. I was the gear guy. I went to parachute rigger school. Oh, so you so got I was to the guy sew. That everybody was bringing their gear mm -hmm. to. So I know how to sew. Yeah. So I was tweaking my carrier. I'd rip things off, put it back on. Mm. Everybody would leave. I'd go to the paraloft, link up with those guys. Yeah. So gear was always, I was always in my cage, messing with stuff. Yeah. You know, and that's just, I loved doing it. And then I went to sniper school, you know, that was after my first deployment. I did sniper school. Yeah. I had, I had gone to scout before my first deployment. I actually had to finish up. I went pick scout. Then I, did I remember sniper. they started doing that. So pick, you're doing the photography stuff, kind of the yes. technical stuff, putting it to the computer, shooting it up, satcom, whatever, whatever they're doing. And then was, stalking. And then stalking, which mm. I freaking loved. Oh, nice. Yeah, you know, I loved, loved that portion of it. And then uh, all the shooting stuff after the fact and then putting everything together at the end there um, was when I came home and then I able, was able to get that call. So I ended up picking up uh, Sniper and then Breacher right after. That's pretty so cool. I grabbed both of those too. And you did I, a real Breacher school. Like uh, I, did, I did it breacher. before September 11th where it was not quite, <laughs> not nearly anything what it became after September 11th when it really I became, did. okay, making entry rather than all the other, what do we call it? A, uh, something E, anyway, something advanced, something explosives. Anyway, I forget what it was, but you were doing still a lot of uh, obstacle clearance type stuff along, you're doing breaching the doors and stuff like that, but not yeah. anything uh, to what you, you yeah. guys have learned, even in school, um, before you went to the command, I'm sure took it to a whole, whole nother level. So you get to do breacher, sniper, you have all these different experiences and you're, as part of that, you're doing surreptitious entry Correct. type stuff, which yeah. is awesome. Um, it, I mean, the book, I, the first book, I put a sewing machine in there, uh, and it's in the, we made, it made it into the uh, to the series with Chris Pratt, so you get to see Chris Pratt building something <laughs> oh, in the nice. uh, in cool. the series, yeah. That's awesome. Because uh, it's a skill I didn't have, because I always had to go to the rigger and yeah. bring a case of beer, especially before we started today. getting. If you give me can something you? right now, yeah, oh, yeah. Nice. And, and in fact, if I had that, like, I instead of telling somebody to do it, I can just grab it and show them. That's this cool. is what I'm talking about, you mm -hmm. know, because I like to be a to be able to get to that root of it. That's yeah, yeah. cool. That's cool that you put that in the series. Oh yeah, it, yeah, it, it looks it looked pretty good in there. Um, uh, but uh, when you get to your first, so you get to this new command and you're a new guy again, how long is it before you kick out the door and go overseas once you show up at your squadron? I mean, obviously went through our, our screening and- And how was that for you? I mean, it was awesome. I mean, I made some really good friends. I got to know Adam Brown more, you know, I screened with Adam. Uh, I screened with uh, Louis Safrant. You know, some guy, a lot of guys aren't here anymore. Yeah. You know, so uh, Colin. Um, yeah. Well, actually, Colin came in after, but multiple guys, and it was awesome. It was a great experience. I mean, it was just to that next level that you know you wanted. You know, as much as we were pushing through CQB and really going to that next level of, of precision, you yeah. know, you felt it. You felt that kind of coming together. So screening, screening was great. And it wasn't too far after that. I don't know the exact months, but I mean, it was pretty short before we were just yeah. deployed again. Timelines we're, are a little shorter we over there. Yeah. Uh, so you, and you, uh, Iraq or Afghanistan? Iraq. Right to Iraq. Nice. And I was just like- At the height. Every night. Yeah. Every other night, you know, operating. A lot of it's kind of crazy to think back on, you know, even talking about team two is like so much up into that point, but because we were operating at such a high tempo, yeah. I literally will be sitting here and I'll just be like, oh yeah, I forgot I did that. Oh, oh yeah, about that op. Mm -hmm. Like it's that, it was that intense. It was almost like you forget about ops that you did that were intense. Yeah. Like we got blown up or like I said, it was, felt like every week we were hitting something, going after an IED cell, mm -hmm. uh, chasing guys, you know, yeah, so. 
Are you, was, are you working out of uh, out a Baghdad area at, or where are you in Iraq? Uh, this where, first one. Where were we? Um, yeah, it was Isn't it crazy how they blend together? Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, I don't recall this stuff very often. Yeah. It's not like I'm sitting there telling my kids all these right? stories every day. And that's day. probably a good thing. So it's that you're it was, building on a foundation rather than being stuck yeah. in that foundation and you with your feet stuck in it and unable not, to move forward. I'm very much like, hey, this is what I did. This is yep. who I was. Right. That's not who I am today. Right. You know, I'm a much different man today than I was even even at the end of my career. Yeah. Uh, so there's a part of me that's that's kind of like, okay, this is what I did. How do I use it for right now? How do I reframe myself to be the best version of myself right in this very moment? Right. That is important, I think, no matter who you are. Yeah. But when I look back at my career, there's just so many gray areas because it was that intense Crazy. that it's almost hard to recall sometimes. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's the truth, whether it's not because I don't have a lot of repetition doing it. But that first deployment was in Iraq. It was super intense. You know, I had realized very quickly, like, this is where I thought the teams were. Mm -hmm. Even as much as I appreciated team two, yeah. I knew that this is what it was supposed to be like right. at, that, at that level of intensity, you know? where we're literally refining our, our tactics every night. Yeah. You know, like, oh, that didn't quite work well. Let's apply it right. to next night. Oh, that didn't work. And that's where the fruits come at the end of the deployment, you know, and you pass that down to the next guys and you mm -hmm. just watch that process right. unfold, you know. So awesome. And you're, uh, and what, what is your position when you, are you a, uh, a breacher here on the, on these first, let's say, few deployments, or are you doing point sniper man. stuff, your point man? Point you're man, going in, sniper, assaulter, going in. Lean into that hard. Nice. I want to be the first guy to touch a dude. Uh, the first couple of times, I wasn't in recce yet. So I wasn't, but I was still the point man for my team. Okay. So anytime my team went off, it was like, hey, that's her building. I was leading them. Okay. So I was in, I was close comms with the, with the recce team. Yeah. Because I, that's where I wanted to go. I wanted okay. to be a part of the recce. So I was talking to those guys, learning from guys like Thomas Ratzloff. Yeah. You know, I was really leaning into, show me the knowledge. Let me plan the routes with you. And then it wasn't too far. I believe the next deployment I was uh, starting to do more recce stuff. And then I ultimately became part of the recce team. Wow. And so that's where I wanted to be. That was the pinnacle for me. Cause I had noticed like those guys were getting their hands on way more people because mm. they're always first to the target and you can always pick mm. and choose. And so for me, I was like, I want control of that. I want to know like where each ladder rung is, where each step is, where I'm going to go, how I'm going to maneuver the team and wow. be the first guy to come up there and take my safety off. Like I want that. That, that was motivation for me. That was my passion. And so I just really leaned into learning from everybody around me and then making that a part of my, my journey. Man. And then again, that goes back to the combatives piece. Like I'm either pulling the trigger or I'm not. Yeah. So if I'm not pulling the trigger, well then I'm doing something else. I'm either wrapping you up, arresting you, or I have to pull a blade out if that's the circumstance, you know, mm -hmm. depending on what the case is, you know. Man. And so you come home from these, you train up, you go, it's you're on this, this uh, uh, this this rotation cycle that's super intense. And are you going back to Iraq mostly, or do you do uh, Afghanistan in there as well? Uh, both. We did yeah. both. Yeah, we bounced back and forth. Um, I would say it was evenly okay. dispersed through both. Yeah. yeah, we did a few Iraq deployments. Like I said, dude, I literally have to like sit here and like write this stuff out. Yeah, and like recheck, like okay, this is yeah. where I went. You know, I don't you know if it's because my brain tries to you know move on past it or. But it's it probably is. a good thing because you're not living back there. You're taking many of the lessons from it and yeah. applying. I see you applying them Principles. all the time. Yeah, yeah. Very principle based. Mm -hmm. Like this is the major thing that I learned that can apply to everything else that I do. Yeah. And I don't get wrapped up in the stuff that would hold me back. You right. Know? Um, I mean, you're I learning on an hourly basis, daily basis, weekly basis. And, you know, you're 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 
you're tweaking things, you're tweaking gear, you're tweaking correct. tactics. Um, enemies doing the same thing, by the way, for anybody listening. Um, <laughs> and uh, so it's it's not just you're like constantly, you know, right here, that enemy gets this vote. There's, uh, of course, Murphy's Law, and they're observing, they're learning, and they're adapting. Yeah. You know, and they continue to do that. I expect today. I expect to go up against us mm-hmm. when I when I go to fight. And that's mm-hmm. true for combatives, that's true for any type of uh, overt assault, is I expect them to be way better than we are. Yeah. You know, and like we have to go up against ourselves. If we had to go assault a house right now into here with you and I prepared to take an assault, mm-hmm. how would we respond? Like I'm I'm ready for that. Yeah. And that level of intensity, which is not anything to shake a stick at. Mm. We would fight to the death, right? And I have to be prepared for that, that fight to the death. And I think that that's where the realism comes into play of, of sharpening that sword on a constant basis, yeah. of knowing that as soon as we get complacent, forget it. Might as well stop doing what you're doing. Yeah. Because the enemy's out there doing exactly that. They get mm. the vote and they want it more than you do, yeah. you know? They're in, they have a home field advantage, which uh, is, uh, is not just a physical thing, but uh, psychological thing as well. Um, so what are you taking from these assaults and putting hands on people and prisoner control and all the rest of it to your training and your combatives when you're back uh, at the beach? And what are you bringing to your team and who are you bringing in to train? And what are you, how's that looking? How are combatives morphing over this time where you're not just doing it in a sterile environment in, a, uh, in some sort of a, a dojo or whatever, you are doing it real life and in a way that hasn't been done so consistently really ever with these right. kind of tools that we have today and the technology we have today. Um, and now you're bringing that back and you have a few months at home and you're thinking about what would, how you could be better prepared the next time you go downrange. What are you bringing to, to combatives and, and incorporating into that combative training when you're, when you're home? Definitely the reality of still to this day, I think this statement is true, is that we're putting hands on people way more than we're shooting them. Mm. And that statement should really hit home for anybody that works behind a gun. Mm. And if you're not putting an emphasis on hand-to-hand combat, you're wrong. You're just flat out wrong. You need to be leaning into that. If this is your job and this is your duty, you have a responsibility to make sure that you can manipulate somebody, another human being, and do it with confidence so that you can transition to your appropriate weapon systems. And so the repetition of being overseas again and again and again, only validated that for me. Mm-hmm. It only solidified it, like, this is true, you have to keep leaning into this yeah. and get good at it. Um, and again, like you said before, sometimes it's only a handful of guys that ever took it seriously. And I, why, I don't know. It's a phenomenon almost, mm-hmm. that uh, you'd get this select group of guys. It's almost like you've got to want a little bit more pain, you have to want to have to put your yeah. pride aside. There's a lot of things mentally that you have to really be able to give up to be able to step into the ring. So that element kind of led me down the road. Now, as a new guy, I, I took the passion, which was guys like Hendo, which I learned so much from, and really listening and watching what he was doing with combatives mm-hmm. and how serious he took it, and just learning. And I would show up. If, if Hendo put a course on, I'd show up. There was never a time where he was like, hey, I'm going to do a boxing lesson, or I'm going to do this lesson, and I didn't mm-hmm. show. I think you're failing yourself if you're not. So... I set that base foundation of really just trying to learn from the guys around me earlier yeah. in the beginning. But then as I became more of a veteran in the squadron, mm-hmm. at that point I had a little bit more say. And then as I got more experience, I would start to put pieces together like you're saying, totally G Kundo, right? Take what's useful, disregard what's useless, 
and adds what's uniquely yours. Put the formula together and then that's what you have. You have a combatives system. You have Mm -hmm. the latest combatives. Whatever it is today, right now at this very second is different than it was 10 years ago. And so to do that and apply that principle all the way throughout my career, I started to like, oh, I can pull in Boss Rutten who does bar fighting and knows with Thai boxing yeah, really well. He's great. I can go to Holland. I can work with Kelly McCann. I can work with Tony Blauer. I can work with guys like Lee Morrison. And so that was one of the benefits of really being at a level where you are living this lifestyle from a tier one perspective and you get to choose who you want to work with for the right reason. Yeah. Right? So while guys were going to jump, uh, climb, you know, name uh, driving course, mm-hmm. I would choose fighting. Nice. Every single time. So mm. like, hey guys, you're two weeks. I was like, okay, where are the best fighters in the world? Where are we wow. going to go train? And so that was just what I did my entire time. Is there any time there was an opportunity? I was the guy that was trying to get to the combatives room in the morning mm. before anybody else. Yeah. Uh, I took that seriously. And I, I just wanted to continue to lean into sharpening that sword. And I saw the gap. And continuing in the squadron, I knew reduced signature tactics and combatives was lacking. And then also... The, uh, the research and development side of things was yeah. lacking as well. So I was the, the squadron representative for all the gear. So that was a whole other world that opened up to me. <laughs> yep. I was like, oh, we actually have funding that we can go do. And, and there were some bad habits I took to that in my own business too. It was like, my wife was like, hey, you can't just go spend whatever you want on whatever you do just because <laughs> yeah. you want a cool right. piece of gear. But those two elements really became a part of what I really love to do. And that was my top three, being a sniper and a point man to the target research and development with the latest and greatest gear and weapon systems, and then the low-vis combatives. Those are the three things that I loved to do, and to this day, I, I still appreciate all three of those. Oh, man, that's so awesome. And, and tweaking the gear. So at some point on there, you start to uh, actually engage with the companies and actually have you know, what you're doing uh, be able to get turned around yes. and into gear that you were taking downrange four months later, six months later, a year later, but much more of a quick turnaround than, uh, we're gonna do this big R&D process with big Navy or big Army or even special operations in general, even SOCOM in general. Uh, it's still gonna, things take a while. And guess what? While that's happening, guess what the enemy's doing? They're adapting quickly, because what don't they have? This gigantic bureaucracy and approval process. Yeah. But you're at a place where you can make these tweaks very quickly, and at some point in there, you realize, oh, I can just go to the company and say, hey, turn this battery this way, or hey, you know what would be good is this, or here's what I made. Um, and here's like, here, here's my helmet from back in the day, like as an example, like this thing. Which I love that you brought that. <laughs> I honestly, I love, like icons like that, they, just, they have a place in time where it just brings back so many memories just staring at that thing, but I love it. <laughs> I mean, crazy, this is a yeah. Mitch, what is it called? Maritime Mitch, yeah, I think, Maritime Mitch. Um, was what this thing was called. So it had the cutouts, which was and right a before, radical thing It was a then. radical thing. And right before you did that, right before that model, we were cutting out cutting ourselves. In Breacher mm-hmm. School, I remember we were like, oh, that's a good idea. Probably totally against any type of uh, yep. testing regulations <laughs> yep. that would have failed everything that we were doing. Uh-huh. Yep, I totally remember guys cutting their helmets and the commands were like, yep. don't cut your helmets. It's, it's, you know, doing something to the structural integrity of the thing. And, yeah. but, uh, but people saw this and were like, oh, that's a good idea. That's Guess what awesome. fits under here? Oh, my pelters fit yep. a little better under here. Um, but uh, yeah, red lens light that I taped up. And that's the original tape from Afghanistan. I wore this in Iraq, wore this in <laughs> Afghanistan. Uh, but I mean, it's taped up here. 
And then these little guys, these were called bite lights, I think. And I couldn't remember why, but one was red and one was green. And one was, I think one was better under nods or something like that when you're in the helo and you're going in and something's changing from a VI to a, to a, a vehicle interdiction to a compound assault or whatever. And you're looking at something. Um, and then that was this original mount you told me. You yeah. could, and you noticed right away. Yeah, that was, like, the, that was one of the original ones that they built uh, for that model too. That's that's wild. We had had uh, and then put the the strobe back there in the back, and then these you things got your here. Bungee your, my bungee that is totally you know, done. I don't really yeah, pull on it; it'll just destroy. Right now, it's a museum piece now, but uh, that was so your nods wouldn't bounce around. You know, yeah. kept them kind of in there. But uh, but then, yeah, not long after this, I were uh, a Surefire guy passed through Iraq, and um, remember him taking. He's like, can I take pictures of that? And he took pictures of all this, and then I think. Surefire did something with those later. I mean, just run. based off of that helmet, the evolution of just staring at that thing, how many things came out after that yeah. where somebody invented, or, or I say invented, but reimagined the ability to connect your nods, to reimagine the strobe, to reimagine the way the, the light mounts, to reimagine the mount on the thing, the strap system. It's like, that's where it started though. Crazy. And guys like you were getting reps in saying, hey, this is kind of like, I need this tweaked. And that's really the evolution of creative thinking. Yeah. of being able to go directly to these vendors that were interested in helping us. So yeah. hey, whatever their motivation was, didn't really matter. No. Our motivation was uniquely, how do I save more lives? Mm -hmm. How do I get my brothers the best equipment possible to be able to put us in the best position and to have the right gear? And so going direct to a vendor saying, this is the tweak, fix it. I actually get to talk to the design guy. I think over the last several years, you know, whatever, the book came out or mm -hmm. however the command changed things, Politics were able to reach their hand way down into where we were, where they don't belong, and ultimately change the way that we were able to do that. Where I was able to talk to a vendor, now they put all types of red tape around it. I think they're coming back around, but it, it hamstringed a lot of creative thinking and fast-tracked ability to bring the best gear to yeah. guys. And it went back to that big Navy type of thinking, slowed a lot of the stuff down, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. You could see it, uh, you could see it happening. Um, and then the, one of the helmets is another one's around here somewhere, right there, I think. But uh, then to see what it evolved into with Ops Corps yeah. and rail systems and all the rest of it, and see the evolution of the, the helmets over the, the years from really right after September 11th and then up to, to when I left, uh, it was cool to see that, yeah. that progression and then be able to, it was so cool to know you guys at that command and see what you were doing and have these relationships where you could pass that along to regular teams and all that stuff. So that was a really cool time, I think, to be in. And you had a, you guys had an approval from your command to actually start a company to do that. Right. Which is crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's not. I mean, it's it not crazy. It's awesome. Yeah. Because you had that that story. That whole thing is is uh, interesting as well. A special thanks to our presenting sponsor, Navy Federal Credit Union. I have been a member since 1996. There is my cue card right there. Man, Navy Federal has been with me every step of the way uh, while I was in the military for those 20 years. And now that I am out and they've taken care of me, taken care of my family um, and have had nothing but the best experience with them. So to have them sponsor this podcast is uh, it's humbling and I am, I am honored. Uh, becoming a member at Navy Federal Credit Union lets you experience more from everyday commutes to your next big vacation. The flagship credit card earns you three times the points on travel so you can get rewarded for wherever you're headed next. Plus, this premium travel card has a low annual fee of $49 
and two times the points on all purchases outside of travel, meaning the rewards don't have to end even when the vacation does. Speaking of rewards, you can get a Navy Federal Auto Loan and reward yourself with a new car. Applying is easy. You can do it on their mobile app, online, or by phone, and it's so fast, you can get a decision in seconds. Navy Federal has great rates on auto loans, plus with their car buying service powered by TrueCar, you can shop, compare, and get upfront pricing on your next new or used car. At Navy Federal, members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA. It is open to the armed forces, the DOD, veterans, and their families. Flagship rates are variable and range between 10.74% and 18% APR based on credit worthiness. ATM fees for cash advances are up to $1 at non-Navy Federal ATMs. Credit and collateral subject to approval. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information and to apply. I want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. Drink Black Rifle Coffee every day. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt, not unsimilar to this one in the Amazon series adaptation of the Terminal List. Now you can go to blackriflecoffee.com slash danger close and use code dangerclose 20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black Rifle Coffee, America's Coffee, keep crushing. It's time to get Mountain Tough. Make America tough again right there on the shirt. You know when you go to the gym and you don't know what workouts do? I hate that. With Mountain Tough, they have created the most functional fitness programs ever designed all delivered to your phone. Created by veteran Navy SEALs and Army Rangers, they make it convenient to go to the gym, do the prescribed workout, and get in the best shape of your life physically and mentally. As you know, if you've been following me for a while, I've been doing a lot more typing than I've been doing running or lifting or doing any functional type fitness. So this is how I'm going to get back after it. Mountain Tough. Plus, they're awesome guys. Uh, I've met them down here. We did a little uh, podcast type interview together, and they are awesome. Solid crew. So that's what I'm going to be doing. And increase mental toughness, build muscle, improve endurance anytime, anywhere from any mobile device. Thousands of hours of testing on dedicated mountain hunters, first responders, and military personnel programs for everyone. Those who hit the gym and heavy weights, those who like to work out at home with no gear at all. Guidance for beginner, intermediate, and elite athletes. The right nudge from the right person at the right time can change your destiny. And regardless of your age or circumstances, I am nudging you to start today as I know the Mountain Tough programs and Mountain Tough community will enable you to become the best version of yourself. Mountain Tough, that is M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H, is offering Danger Close listeners 20% off all their online training programs and apparel with the code DANGERCLOSE at mtntough.com. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. All right, so if you go to crusheverything.com, you can check out all the blades that Dom Rosso, Dynamis Alliance have out there. And there are quite a few. I have multiples of each. And uh, right here, this was the original right there. So you can see that. Yeah, that's the Dynamis blade right there made by Winkler Knives, Daniel Winkler down in North Carolina. And uh, this thing is just 
solid. Love this blade right here. And the sheaths also about the sheaths fit all the knives. So that is, that is really cool about this goes inside the waistband. Awesome sheath. Uh, it just finds in the appendix. It just finds at good spot to ride. And uh, yeah, love the sheaths. Love that blade. Uh, the second one he came out with right here. So that is the Razorback. Yep. Aim for our friend, Adam Brown. And if you have not read Fearless by Eric Blem about Adam Brown's life, I highly recommend it. So this one's a little smaller right here. Has that red color in there. Oh, love this blade too. Uh, this one, this one means a lot. So that is the Razorback. This is the newest right here. This is the Revere. So it's a little bigger than the uh, Dynamis blade. And this thing, it, I just started carrying it about uh, two weeks ago. And I love it. This thing, it's not too big to carry in the appendix. And it is solid. So this thing, awesome. The Revere, you definitely need one or two. Because why? One is none. Yep. This is the SMR blade right here. So this one's really made to go with board shorts, be in a place, uh, carry in a place where you maybe don't want anyone to, to know that you are carrying, but you're wearing shorts uh, and that sort of a thing. Same sheath, but a uh, different color right here. Um, so it's a little less threatening, but, uh, and it also acts as a bottle opener, which is probably how you'll use it the most. But uh, this thing is pretty sweet as well. And this particular one right here is infused with this, uh, this coating. So it does not rust. So you can find out more about that crush everything.com hit the blade section, find out about that coating. And that coating is also on this, the second generation combat flathead. And if you've read my novels, you know how much I love this thing. If you've read my latest in the blood, you will uh, know that this has a starring role, but it's infused with that coating as well. So we don't have to worry about rust. And uh, this thing is just solid. I love this combat flathead. Uh, the earlier, earlier ones right here were wrapped in leather. So these are Awesome. Love these. Those ones are not infused with that coating, um, but super solid. Love these things. Uh, what else? Trainers. Trainers come with these as well. So uh, you can practice. Uh, and on that website, crusheverything.com, you can find out about Dom's training courses and your options there for some, some blade work and some, some blade training. Um, right there, that is the sheath for the combat flathead. So that, uh, that works as well. And, uh, usually I carry that one right on the, in my, in my pocket right there. And my other blade is right there in appendix. And then there are some non-metallic options. So those are in there as well. And I can only think that James Reese will be taking advantage of the non-metallic option in a future novel. Thank you for tuning into the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. Find out more about Dom Rosso at crusheverything.com. Follow along on Instagram at Dynamis Alliance. Type in Dom Rosso. You can follow him as well. And if you like this conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels. You can go to officialjackcar.com. That's the website. And go to jackcarusa.com for the merch. Thank you so much for tuning in. Sincerely appreciate it. Take care out there. Be safe. Stay strong. Keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels. Mm. 
you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you... do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or right. Right. An How, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.